Let me, uh, let me uh, begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Holy Father, we, we ask that in this moment where you have brought us together in the name of Christ into this place to worship you, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts once again to the greatness of who you are and what you have done and who Christ is for us. We ask that you would, um, in a work of grace, allow those stresses and concerns and distractions of, of uh, this season to just be set aside this morning, and that we would um, perhaps rediscover or um, reconsider the, the, uh, the most important aspect in all of life, and that is a personal relationship with your son. And uh, I ask that for those who are here this morning who, who don't know him, I, I ask that uh, you would do a work of, of opening a heart of faith to see that this is real, um, that he really came and he really lived and he really died, to know he did so as an expression of your love, as an expression of your grace, as an expression of, of, of your desire to want us to know who you are and that we could live in light of, 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 uh, of a God who is, who is rich in mercy and love. So I pray, Lord, that you would grant power um, to me to be able to accurately deliver what you have given, um, what has been written, and I ask that you grant us power to listen and to hear and to consider and to have our hearts um, spoken to directly and personally by you through the word, and I pray this in the name of Christ, amen. One of the things that I, I, I believe we have to do as, as believers is, is become students of, of, of our own souls. Uh, first and foremost, students of, of Christ and students of the Scripture, but it's important for us to, to be able to, to study our own, our own soul, to get a sense of the shape of who we are, to, to understand why we respond uh, to certain things the way we do, and joys and fears and angers and so forth. And one of the things that I have, have noticed in myself, um, as I've been a student of my own soul and a student of humanity, and as a pastor, I'm a student, a student of human nature and a student of, of many of you, is I've noticed this, uh, this, this inclination to search after the ever-elusive it, I-T. It's one of those words, right? It, just simple. But it's, it's so generic. It's neither masculine nor feminine. It's just, just it's, it's neuter. It's undefined. It's, it's ambiguous. Um, and it's impersonal, this idea of, of, of it. And most of us, when we find um, that we're pregnant as a couple, we rarely like to refer to our unborn child as an it. We want it to be a he or a her because we want definition to it. But I believe it, that ambiguous it, um, accurately describes a secret belief in the human heart, every single human heart, that there is something out there that if we have it, it will enrich or make our life, our life whole, whatever it is. Um, as I said, I think it's accurate way of describing that secret belief because as soon as you try to describe what it is and you go after it, you realize that it's not it, Right? Um, that there are people who believe that if you just find your soulmate, right, if, if, if I just find my soulmate, then I will have found it. And that, in that case, it is defined by a romantic relationship. But then the soulmate is, quote, unquote, found, and pretty soon you realize this is not it. The ever-elusive it, it's, 
It's, it's somewhere else. All you find is a shadow of the it. Um, or, I, in my opinion, much of the sexual confusion in our day is nothing less than the desire to find it. Um, that one thing that's going to make you complete, that's going to give you that sense of identity that you're gonna make, that's going to make you happy. And then when people try to find an identity or find it an identity, all they find is, uh, again, another hollow shadow of it. It's not there. And it's, no matter where you try to find it in this world, it's just, it's just sim- simply, it's, it, you, you can't find it. It's the ever-elusive it. And Christians do it too. Um, oftentimes, uh, in a very different way. Sometimes we think that it, and at least theologically we believe that it is somehow connected with God, um, that it is found in a particular style of worship or preference or form. And so what happens is people go looking for it, some kind of emotion or experience-based event, and, and they try different things in an effort to find it and, and realize that it, that sense of satisfaction, that sense of you've arrived, isn't found in a, in a preference or a style or a form. But there's still that belief. It's out there, and so... People will wander from church to church to church looking for it. Oftentimes it's the novel. It's the new. And it feels good at the, at, the, at the beginning, but pretty soon the new turns old and the old turns boring. And then what do you do? You go looking for it again, right? Well, if Advent season teaches us anything, I think it teaches us this. That whatever it is, is not found in it. It is only found uniquely and exclusively in a hymn that is in Christ. Um, That is what the Bible holds out to us as the one thing. The one thing that if we have a relationship with Christ Jesus, it's a real relationship where we worship him and he indwells us, that, that that is it. But I don't want to call it an it. I want to call it a hymn. It's personal. It's true. And it is the one thing that I believe the Bible holds out as satisfying to the human soul. And a big part of what he offers to us is this thing called, called joy, which is the Advent theme of, of this morning, is this idea of, of, of joy, which is in some sense hard to define. You almost know it simply by a sense of, yes, that's joy. A sense of satisfied goodness. That yes, this is good. And Christ came to give us that, that, that joy. And I want to look at um, that joy this morning, where it's found, and also how it's sustained in the Gospel of John by looking at one verse first, chapter 17, verse 13. And then you'll see a clear connection between that and chapter 15, verses 9, 10, 11, specifically 11. So those are the verses. To, to, to get at this thing called joy, um, where we experience that sense of, of, of yes, of, of this is good, this is satisfying, like there's nothing better. That's, that's, that's the joy part. Well, the first verse that I'm going to talk about or draw your attention to is found in chapter 17. For those of you who know the Gospel of John, you'll know this is a very famous prayer of Jesus. Some call it the prayer of intercession. 
Um, in the first five verses, he prays about himself, 1 through 5, and 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. In chapter 20, or excuse me, verses 20 through 26, he prays for the church, the extended church. Well, wedged into the middle of his prayer for his disciples, he prays regarding the joy of his disciples, um, or our joy. Now, as mentioned last week, these chapters, chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters, are set within the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. Uh, some have called these the farewell discourses, and they're in, they're in, like, he's about to say farewell, he's about to die, and after that he's going to ascend, and he's going to physically disappear from, from earth as we know it. And these chapters are intended to prepare them for his departure, for him not being here. In other words, they are given to us to help us for him not being here. And a big part of what he wants his disciples to experience when he's gone is joy, which is why he prays for it. Now, this is what he prays for. He's called this joy incarnate. By the way, um, I wrote this this way, joy incarnate, because the God of the Bible is a happy God. Um, he is a God who is supremely joyful and overflowing in, 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 in the pleasure of who he is. He's a God who sings, right? That's, that's, that's if you will, that's the heart of God. It's a God who is, who is overwhelmingly joyful. And his joy takes on human flesh in the person of Jesus to give us his joy. Well, this is the verse. They're just embedded into the middle of this amazing prayer. He says, but now I am coming to you. He's speaking to the Father. And I'm, I'm going to depart here and go to be with the Father. And these things I speak in the world that they, referring to the disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Two parts to this verse. Like just imagine breaking it in two. The first half of the verse deals with the means of joy and the second half has to do with the result of joy being fulfilled in the disciples. The second part, let's go to the second part. It's the result or the purpose where he says that, that this is the purpose, this is the result of what, from what comes before, that they, my disciples, may have my joy fulfilled. It's like, it's significant because what he's saying to us is that our joy does not come from a Ford dealer. It doesn't come from Macy's, Neiman Marcus, or a soulmate. It's this is my joy. Um, the joy that I have as, as, as God's son it's my joy I give to them. Not based upon any earthly possession or earthly circumstances. It's my joy that I have. I share it with them. He is the source of Christian joy. Christ shares it with us. His own sense of divine happiness he shares with us. Okay, so it's his joy. That's the source. But... Now back up to the first part, because it talks about the means. And I would be willing to say that um, us in this room, we, like, we want his joy. And it's not just his joy, but fulfilled, the idea of filling. For Christians to be genuinely joyful people, even if you've lost somebody, to still have that sense of joy, even in winter's morn. Well, he says, the means to that joy, he says, are these things, right? These things I speak in the world. That is, while I'm still here in flesh and blood. In other words, the things that he speaks are intended to give the disciples joy if those things are believed. That begs the question. You see, you see the logic of that? Like, he's speaking. 
And the reason he's speaking is for the purpose that he shares his joy with us. So what is or what are these things that he's speaking? Because it's the key to joy. It's the key to being filled with joy. Well, for sake of time, let me just say or submit to you that it's what he says in these five chapters, these farewell speeches to his disciples, that it's these things that if they believe and take in, that they will find themselves filled with Christ's joy. These things. And if that's the case, which I believe it is, then there is a direct link to chapter 15, verse 11. Okay? At this point, I'm just simply pointing out to you the source of joy. It's Christ's joy he shares with us. But chapter 15, verse 11, and what comes before, expands upon it a little bit. You'll notice the language is the same. And here I want you to skip down from verse 9 down to verse 11, where he says, this is two chapters before, he says, These things, same words, I have spoken to you that my joy, there it is again, may be in you and that your joy may be full. Same words. Same these things, same my joy, same idea of fullness. You get the idea that Jesus wants his people, his followers, after he's gone, to be joyful people. Not morose, gloomy, (laughs) overwhelmed with sadness, but, but joyful people. People who have found it, but not it, a him. Well, okay, so what exactly, again, are these things? Well, in one sense, like I said, you can go through these five chapters and consider all of their themes and so forth, and, and, and I believe um, the entirety of what he says would, if we took it in, soaked it in, meditated upon it, prayed over it, and it became a part of our souls, it would lead us to joy. But I think the immediate context can give us a clear sense, if you will, put a finer point on it. Getting at the source of where joy comes from. Back up to verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Just mental note how many times the word love is used right here in these few verses. Abide in my love. There's three. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. There's four. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There's five. Love, love, love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I believe that joy is the fruit of being loved by God. There's no more simple or profound or important truth to believe is that you are, I am, we are loved by God. The most important truth to grasp with the heart, we are loved by a father. And only in embracing and living in the reality of that love do we find the joy full. Now, let me connect it even further. It's like 
in one sense, the backbone of these five chapters that say farewell, or let me say the backbone of the book of John, is how much the Father loves us. The most famous of all verses, right? For God so loved the, the sinful, dark world that he gave his only son. You know, the, 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 the word love is used more in the Gospel of John than any other book in the New Testament and any other book in the entire Bible except the Psalms. It's because there's so many of them. That we saw last week in chapter 13 that Jesus, who is, who is God in the flesh, gets down on his hands and knees as a slave and washes the feet of his disciples, kind of a preview of the cross where he would cleanse them from sin. As an act, as an expression, as a display of God's love coming down and caring for his people. Speaking love, love, love. That is to say that Christian joy finds its deepest source in simply believing that in Christ we are loved by, by God. That we are loved by God. That's the source of of joy, that it comes from Christ and is grounded in the love of, of Christ. Now, doesn't it, don't you think just appealing to your human experience, right? Isn't that the truth? That when you felt the most loved, you felt the most joyful? Indulge my sick Christmas humor here, but, you know, Will Ferrell, elf, right? Realizes that Josie loves him bursts into the office full of joy, an explosion of joy, and says, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows, right? It's joyful because he knows he's loved. Even Elf gets it, right? I can tell children, young children who grow up in loving homes. You know why? Because they're happy children. Not to embarrass anybody here, but there's three little boys that are an explosion of joy every time I see them. And some of you know who they are. Azariah, Aiden, and Avery, Ho. Their last name's Ho. My family calls them the Ho Boys. Kind of sounds funny. <laughs> but those little boys, if you ever watch them sing up here, they bounce, they grin. From time to time, they, they stop by the church to give cookies to the staff, and I'll tell you what, it's a little joy bomb goes off, right? And, and you know what that tells me? They know they're loved. They know they're loved. They live in the security of the parents' love. They are safe in their parents' love. They enjoy their parents' love, and it shows. God wants the same of us. He, he doesn't want you to live under the doom and gloom of a of a decaying world. He wants you to live in the joy of knowing that you're loved and that love will carry you through to the resurrection in the new world. I mean, think about it. Everything that God does for us in Christ is an expression of love, which he didn't have to do, right? He'd, he came for us. He became flesh. He didn't have to, but he did in love. Um, he revealed the Father to us, which is a a gift beyond comprehension that, that he would make known who the maker of the world is. He didn't have to, but he did in love. Like, he, he gave us teachings that define who we are, that declare who God is, and how God has worked to bring us to him. His, he didn't have to, but he did, and he did in love. Uh, he didn't have to suffer. He didn't 
have to go to the cross. He didn't have to stretch out his arms and take our place, but, but he did. And he did in love. He didn't have to give us his Holy Spirit to awaken us and carry us, but he did. And he did it in love. He, didn't, he doesn't have to guard us and protect us and hold us in his hand so that nobody can snatch us out, but he does, and he does in love. And someday he'll call our name and say, rise from the earth. He didn't have to, doesn't have to do that, but he will do it, declared he'd do it because he loved us. And there is no Christian joy outside of belief, a conviction, an awareness and a realization that God loves you. There's nothing deeper than that. If you think there is, then you're going to go on wandering and looking for the it that doesn't exist. It's right here. Do you believe that in, in church? That, that, did you really believe it? Or is it just a concept to you? There will be no fruit of fullness of joy until the Spirit of God takes the truth of his love, the truth of the cross, the truth of Jesus, and impresses it into our souls in a way that we are like the three boys that I know, happy children in the Lord. Well, there you have, that's, that's the source of it. Now, some of you in here, maybe many of you, might be thinking, well, I had it once. When I first came to the Lord and I knew my sins were forgiven and I knew I was his, there was a joy in my heart and I've never gotten it back. Which is an important question. I'd love to just pause right here and have you raise your hands like, who's lost the joy of the Lord? (laughs) I'd be willing to say that if it wasn't for peer pressure, a lot of people would raise their hands. So how is the joy of being loved by God that many of us experience when we first are awakened or first come to him, how is it sustained? How is it sustained? How, is it, how does it continue? How do you continue to live in the love of God and therefore experience the joy of the Lord? Well, Jesus addresses that too. And that is, in this context... I know some of you would say, well, the theological answer is, uh, our joy is sustained by grace. Yes, amen. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other pieces to that, or there aren't means to the sustaining of joy in the realization of God's love. Verse 9, that joy is in some sense sustained by our obedience, our loving obedience to him. Verse 9, it says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Abide. Stay. Don't leave. If you picture God's um, love as a waterfall, just constant current, then what he's saying is don't leave it. Just stay under its stream, under its current. Let, let God's love continually wash over you. Abide in it. Stay in it. Stick with it. Grasp it. Hold it. Don't let go of it. That's abiding, right? Well, question, how, how? What does it mean to abide in his love? How do you stay there? How do you, how do you stay under the current of it? How do you s- allow it to continue to wash over you so that you experience the joy of the Lord, right? Joy is a fruit of love. Well, he's pretty explicit. And these words 
should be, maybe, convicting. He says, if you keep my commandments, plural, we know that the main commandment he gives in these five chapters is the command to love one another as I have loved you. Commandments is plural, which includes more. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other words, as we live lives aligned with Christ's word and Christ's will, we enjoy his love. Now, I, some of you are, gonna, are objecting inwardly. You're just going, well, I don't know if I like that. Because it makes it sound like God's love for me is contingent upon my obedience. And does, does God just love me if I obey? And the answer, of course, is no. I mean, the, the whole current, I used that word a little too much this morning, the whole current of John is to say, listen, there is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world, that, that for God so loved the sick and sinful world that he sent his only begotten son. We already saw last week um, God the Father in the person of Jesus Christ get down on his hands and knees to wash the feet of sinners. So no, it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And Yet his love preceded that. So, no, God's love for us is never conditioned upon our obedience. However, our enjoyment of it, our confidence and assurance of it, is something that comes as a fruit of our alignment to his will. Our obedience to him. That's that's what he's saying. Or, one of my favorite uh, commentators on this particular commentary... Carson writes it this way. He says, However much God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, and it is. I'm a sinner. I'm flawed. I'm broken. So are you. So we don't deserve it. However much God's love for us is gracious and undeserved, continued enjoyment of that love turns, at least in part, on our response to it. And he's talking about our response of loving obedience. And as a Christian is most happy... When his life aligns with the will of Christ. Think about it for a moment. If you have been, not to sound Pentecostal, but if you've been born again, you have been made new, he's given you a new heart, a new creation, then that new heart, that new creation, that new birth, longs for Christ. It not only longs for Christ, longs for the word of Christ. Longs to be like Christ. Longs to obey. It's an inward desire for obedience. And when you live contrary to that inward nature that he's planted inside you, you become a very frustrated and joyless person. Right? I, a whale, you know, orca, a whale is by nature supposed to swim in the sea. Can you imagine a whale deciding, I'm going to beach myself and live a happy life? There's no happiness being beached when you've been made to live in the water. Or a horse deciding, hey, I think I'm going to go subterranean and dive into the water and hold my breath for 15 minutes. Because I want to be a fish. Horse ain't going to be happy for too long trying to be a fish. A horse is happy running on the plains. The Christian is most happy, is most joyful, and most satisfied when his or her life aligns to the will of Christ and we enjoy personally the fullness of God's love and therefore 
experience fullness of joy. Listen, if, if our lives as, as, as believers, and granted, none of us are perfect in this room. We're in, the, we're in process, right? But if, 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 if our lives are so far out of alignment with the will of Christ and the word of Christ and we're living for something else, then that something else ultimately is the it. And we obey what we worship. And if that it, whatever it is, however defined or undefined, um, is what you're searching for and looking for and living for and that's what you're aligning your life to, well, that has become, in effect, your God and you worship it. And we obey what we worship. If a man uh, worships his wife, he will do whatever she wishes. If a man or woman um, worships his or her career, they will be willing to align everything for the, the career of his or her dreams. We worship what we, excuse me, we obey what we worship. If Christ is our highest prize, if his love is the greatest thing that we have ever tasted, if it is, in the, in the, in the words of Psalm 63, better than life, well, then all of life will align a desire to obey. And in that desire and the living out of that obedience, there will be an alignment and there will be a fullness of joy. That, according to Jesus, is, is what it means to abide in my love. And in the abiding of the love of God, there is, is joy. So here's the, here's the, here's the application this morning. Some of you, it's pretty obvious. But let, let me maybe make it more obvious. It's not by accident that, that we're all here this morning. And there are some who don't know the Lord. You don't believe that he loves you. Or maybe you believe in a very superficial way. But there's no joy in your life. Like the first order of business this morning, if you do not know the love of Christ, is to believe, to embrace, and say yes. You will never have another being love you in the way that Christ loves you. And for you this morning, perhaps even tasting it in the last 10, 20, 30 minutes, are saying, yes, I think this is true. Then it's time this Advent season for you to say, yes, I believe. And to become a follower of Christ. That's one application, simply belief. Do you believe it? God loves you in the love of God. There is joy that is, in, that is independent of your circumstances and your possessions. The second application, also very direct. If you are a believer and you lost your joy a long time ago, perhaps, just perhaps, your life is out of alignment. Perhaps you're leave, living in a subtle and settled disobedience. You're not loving people as Christ loved others, serving people as Christ served us, and you know it. Well, according to what Jesus teaches us, you know, part of our abiding in his love and the experience of the joy that comes with that love 
is that we obey him. And perhaps this morning is just a time for, for change. A course alteration needs to happen. That's between you and God, not you and me. It's between you and God. But man, uh, the, the, Lord, the Lord wants us to live in the joy that he offers us. The joy of the Lord is offered to us this morning. And I can't think of anything that would testify. Well, love testifies for sure. But there's something about the joy in a Christian heart, even and especially in difficult circumstances, that is attractive. And it, it, it says to the world, you know what? They have something that I don't have. And that's joy. And I, I just pray that if it's been lost, it'll be recovered this Advent. I mean, that's why we gather right to hear God speak to us. And he's speaking to me through this. There's things I need to align in my life because I want the joy of the Lord and to know firsthand more and more of the love of Christ. So perhaps, perhaps this will be a, a change point or alignment point for you, and I, I pray that. Will you take just a, just a second and maybe just in the quietness of your own heart, answer the simple question, how, how am I going to respond to this this morning? Just what is the Spirit saying to me? And um, my prayer is that it will uh, awaken some new joy.